everyone, this is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. And I'm going to be covering a survivor story this week. I've been wrapping up um, my school semester and taking finals, and Cassie is going to be in and out of town this whole month. So um, she and I are going to try and meet up next week and get some stuff recorded for y'all. But uh, in the meantime, I have uh, a happy story instead of a sad one. I uh, Before we start, I do personally, I just want to say thanks to the people who have reached out to us on social media recently with uh, kind messages of support and positivity um, and like fun topics and conversations. So I'm really bad about responding in a timely manner. Cassie is much, uh, much better at that. I don't really know what to say half the time. So I just wanted to let you guys know that they're not going unnoticed and we appreciate you guys uh, being so kind to us and we're not obviously consistently recording so it's hard to uh, address everyone and say thanks um, on a regular basis so anyway I thought I would say something while I was at it all right so I'll go ahead and get right into the story this is the story of Bridget Kelly in Killeen Texas Uh, I read about her case in the New York Times and a few Texas papers and I watched her episode on um, the ABC show called Primetime, which I'll mention later, as well as her episode on I Survived, which was actually episode one of season one. So she was the first case ever covered on that show, which is pretty cool. Um, Bridget would originally be from Omaha, Nebraska, and after graduating college, she would begin her teaching career in Fort Hood, Texas, which is basically right next to Colleen. She said she lived in an older part of town at the time, but it was still a relatively safe area. And on the night of June 21st, 2002, Bridget would pick up a friend at the airport after a late uh, late night flight arrival, and then uh, she returned home to her apartment. She explains that the complex was gated, but that night the gate was stuck in the open position. She said she came inside, locked both of her deadbolts, uh, slipped the chain in place, and began to just get ready for bed, like usual. She had put on her pajamas, she was brushing her teeth, and then all of a sudden she just heard a resounding boom from the front wall of her apartment. She said she walks up to the door, looks through the peephole, and she said it was almost like it was in slow motion, but she saw a man charging towards her front door at this point he manages to somehow kick in the door slamming it into her since she was you know still on the other side watching him through the peephole um which is crazy because it's like two deadbolts like i don't know this like weird hulk crackhead strength i don't know uh this obviously knocks her down um and she's on the ground he proceeds to pull out his gun and demand money Um, In one of the interviews, she says that in this moment, she just kept thinking, you know, this isn't reality. This isn't really happening. She felt like she was in just a totally different world, a weird dream state, something. This isn't right. This isn't actually happening to me. Uh, She said the feeling was like, um, I'm going to kind of like mess this up because she did it perfectly. But she basically was saying that. You know, when you start to gasp because you're you get scared or startled, she said, you know, that you go. But she said, you know, you release that breath and basically this whole time was like she was holding this gasp inside because she was just terrified and like it just never ended for her. So as she's laying on the ground trying to figure out what the hell is going on, she notices that the man in her apartment was pretty tall. He was skinny and young. But uh, despite any sort of mental denial that was actually occurring, Bridget definitely knew that he had a gun and that's really all she kept focus on. She wasn't really paying attention to who he was, but just what was he doing and what was going to happen to her. So at this point, he still wants 
cash. You know, that's all he's really supposedly there for. So she gives him the 40 bucks that she had in her purse. But according to him, that wasn't enough. So he and Bridget proceed to get into a car and head toward an ATM for more money. At this point, they're in the car. The shock is kind of worn off, at least the initial, and she's realizing she's in deep shit. She begins to pray out loud in the car while he's driving, and she's doing whatever she can to try to get him to, you know, view her as a human and make a human connection. Um, She tells him that she was a first grade teacher who loved teaching children, and she asked him, she even asked him if he remembered any of uh, the stories that he had read when he was a child. She said she even began to quote parts of Peter Rabbit to shift his focus from, you know, this rage, aggressive state to more of sympathy and It was all she could do, is all she could think of. Unfortunately, this was done in vain. She said they soon after pulled up to a parking lot with a standalone kind of ATM thing in the middle, which sounds kind of sketchy in the first place, but okay. Uh, She remembers thinking that there was, you know, there was no one around. She was just literally standing there in the lot while he waited in the car. And she said she was, you know, she was at a pretty decent distance from him. But still in that moment, even though it was fairly quiet and solitary she still felt this unwavering control that he had over her even being separated from him and at this point nothing too violent or traumatic has I mean obviously traumatic but nothing um he hasn't beaten the shit out of her or raped her yet you know it's still he just wants some money that's what should be going through her mind but she was like no this is this is terrifying even still so there was a two hundred dollar uh maximum withdrawal amount so she you know gets as much as she can takes the cash returns to the vehicle so at this point uh bridget and her abductor drive out of the lot and she said that she felt like they were driving for forever it never ended but in reality it was probably only a few minutes down the road but in those minutes she kept thinking just the most terrible thoughts about what might happen to her once they you know do stop the car and she specifically was in fear that she would be gang raped Um, She also noticed that they were not driving back towards town, but out of town, more towards a rural part of the area. And during the car ride, she said that she could just feel herself leaving humanity behind the further that they drove away from the city. Her ploys and attempts to change the man's mind were fruitless. And as her desperation for survival began to somewhat dwindle, uh, the acceptance of potentially being killed began to set in. She pauses for a moment while in the interview, tears begin to fill in her eyes. And she recalls that in that moment that at least, you know, at least a lot of people loved her and she could be killed. And the fact that she felt love in her life is all that really mattered to her in those minutes. Um, The two arrive at an empty field outside of town. Uh, In the distance, there are some homes, um, but essentially they were kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, He tells her to get out of the car and to take off her clothes. You're going to hear Kane barking in the background. I'm, I can't do anything about it at this point. So, sorry. Um, where was I? Da-da-da-da-da. Oh, yeah. Take off her clothes, right? So, at this point in the interview, she lets out a big sigh. More tears appear, and she reiterates that getting raped was such a huge fear of hers. And like I mentioned before, she had it on the forefront of her mind already. And now it was actually going to happen. She said she quietly begged and told him, quote, God doesn't want you to do this. Please don't do this. And she said she remembered when she actually, this is so sad, um, stepped out of the car. She saw her ATM card fall into the grass at her feet. 
and thought, that's how they'll identify my body. That's how they'll know who I was. And in a last ditch effort, Bridget is naked in an empty field and she tries to make a run for it. Her escape attempt was short-lived when the man grabs her from behind and she immediately feels the barrel of the gun being pushed into her back. So she knew she had fucked up with trying to run off and she just tried to tell herself like, look, I can't make careless mistakes right now. She knew she needed to stay focused and she said she had to keep her head together to actually survive and make it out of this situation. At this point, he does rape her, and she said she just had to mentally disconnect to get through it. She said it was all so surreal, and she knew that once he was finished, that she probably only had mere seconds to live afterwards if she was lucky. Um, So after Bridget's rape was over, he tells her to stand up and walk away from him in the field and to keep her back to him. She knew she was going to be shot and she began to somewhat brace herself for the bullet. But the anticipation was just so overwhelming. Like you, you can't see what's happening. You're, you know, just post rape. Like you don't know. It's like horrible. And she didn't know how far he was going to make her walk before firing or how many times he would shoot. But she knew regardless, wherever she was hit, she would fall to the ground and just play dead. So the first shot went off and it went straight through her body. She hit the ground and heard him walk over to her body. And so he's standing over her. He shot her once more through the lower back. So this bullet would ricochet to her colon, stomach, diaphragm, liver, and spleen. But in a stroke of luck, both of those bullets had missed her spine and her heart. Um, But just for good measure, as he turns to leave and head back to his car, he shoots her for a third and final time because, you know, why the fuck not? At this point, Bridget hears the car drive off and she tries to stand up and take a full breath. You know, I mean, she's trying to get her shit together. She said it was almost impossible to breathe and she was rapidly losing blood from her gunshot wounds. She tried to speak out loud and say, please help me just to herself in the aftermath. But she couldn't gather a breath deep enough to even verbalize, you know, a cry for help or verbalize her pain at that moment. So reality begins to set in. Just because she's alive doesn't mean she'll be able to make it anywhere to get help. In what she thought were probably going to be some of her last moments alive, she began to think of her family, uh, specifically her baby niece, Jenna, who she thought, you know, she's never going to get to know me. I'm never going to get to know her. And she thought, I'm 24. This isn't supposed to be the end of my life in this place, in this field. This can't be happening. And with that, Uh, her fight or flight mode was ignited. She managed to stand up all the way, still naked, covered in blood and scratches from the brush and the grass. And she said she um, saw the homes in the distance that she had seen prior and knew that she had to try and head that direction. So she took a few steps, but she fell back down on the ground. This is when she felt um, sort of like an invisible shove from behind and a voice in her head that said, get up, go now, run. The next thing that Bridget remembers after that is being on her knees outside of one of the homes that she had seen adjacent to the field. She relentlessly began ringing the doorbell to the home and a man opens the door. It would be the home of Frank James, a retired uh, military man who spent over 20 years in service. He yelled back inside his home for someone to grab a blanket for her. And, you know, when he saw her on the front porch, like, She was just begging, you know, please call 911. She said she couldn't care less that she was naked in front of a stranger. And she said, I think you just you tune out sensory experiences. You don't panic. You just do what you have to do in a situation like that. 
Frank would stay with Bridget until medical personnel would arrive. She would spend over six hours in surgery to stabilize her from the gunshot wounds. Uh, later, ev- evidently, she would have to go or undergo two to three more surgeries in relation to her injuries. Um, Bridget would be hospitalized for several months before she fully recovered. And she claims that she actually draws on her rape and trauma every day for strength. She likes to remind herself that if she can survive that, she basically can survive anything. So um, we'll go into kind of who uh, who did this. Bridget's rapist would be at that time 19-year-old Jamal Adrian Turner. Uh, Jamal would be apprehended the same night of her attack. And remarkably, he would return to the field with a couple of friends in hopes of kind of showing them her dead shot and raped remains. Luckily, police had already made their way to the field to start collecting evidence and assess the crime scene. Uh, Jamal and his friends began to run off when they realized the police had spotted them. But once his friends were inevitably caught up to, they immediately told the police who Jamal was, where he lived. um, And so they were able to stake out his home and make an arrest. Ironically, he lived only about two blocks from the police station. So that's nice. From what I read, uh, Jamal Turner had no prior criminal record. He would be charged with aggravated kidnapping, aggravated sexual assault, aggravated robbery, and attempted murder. He would plead guilty and would be sentenced to life for the kidnapping and rape convictions, uh, 40 years for the robbery, and 20 years for the attempted murder, Um, which, you know, sounds all fine and dandy, but he is eligible for parole on uh, June 20th, 2032. Um, We can, I guess, do a small questions and theories section here because I really wasn't able to find any detailed mention of why Jamal chose Bridget's complex or unit, if he lived there, or if, you know, was he able to access it because of the broken gate? So at this point, the, you know, the motive and the psychological aspect of this attack is kind of unknown to me, at least. Um, But it's definitely concerning since Jamal was relatively young, combined with the fact that he had no prior criminal record. Um, So it's definitely a question in my mind of what led up to these events. Um, Perhaps was it a gang initiation task? You know, I only wonder that because he did attempt to bring his friends to the crime scene to sort of show off or prove what he did. But they did give him up fairly quick when, you know, the friends were questioned, which doesn't really equate as badass gangster behavior. So maybe not. Plus, you know, and this isn't always the case. And I I don't want to say statistically, but I would say that in many cases of juvenile gang activity, there are usually instances of misdemeanors on their criminal record leading up to that point, you know, of which he lacked. So if anything, I'm... Assuming, though, that robbery was initially the main motive, um, I'm uncertain if he had any form of disguise to hide his identity from her in the process of the crimes, because if so, I would then have to assume that if the situation got out of his control at some point, his immediate reaction wouldn't be that he had to rape and kill her to get away with it as long as his face wasn't seen. But again, he was an inexperienced 19-year-old committing his alleged first crime so I doubt his thought process was very thorough um but to drive home my point is that he seemed fairly disorganized or very actually and if he had actually planned this out which it doesn't seem like he did you would think that he would have thought to rob someone that he knew clearly had more than forty dollars on them which if that's the case uh it could lead to the possibility that robbery was actually just a front to do what he really wanted which was to abduct rape and kill her and just give her the false hope that it was just a robbery so maybe she'd be a little more compliant or something and think that she 
had an out at some point. Um, but at the same time, if rape and murder were the motive, he could have done all that in her apartment if that was the main goal. So I don't know. I'm, I'm just throwing out some ideas. I could go on and on as we know by now. This is fun. I wanted to add this in here. So during uh, his or since he's been incarcerated, uh, Jamal has spent his time in prison on dating sites. <laughs> so that's nice. Inmate dating sites. And this is his little um, profile, sort of, if you will. Quote, what's up? My name's Jamal. I'm 23 years old and I'm currently looking for a woman that I can communicate and connect to. Someone who is willing to become friends and can possibly later on down the line can build that friendship into a relationship. I really like women who are not afraid to say what's on their her mind. Someone who loves to express her feelings and enjoys voicing her opinions. I like to talk about any and everything. I love to read, especially urban books. Okay. That I was questioning it, not him. The color of your skin does not matter to me at all. Your personality, your character, and the way you conduct yourself does. That's ironic. Uh, it's who you are and not what you are. Someone who is smart, beautiful, has a great sense of humor, and someone who is understanding. I have many goals in life that I have yet to accomplish. No shit. Many places I have not seen. I like to travel. Since when? You were 19. Party, obviously. Play basketball and enjoy life. If you're curious, hit me up. Take a chance. What can it hurt? Life is too short. Explore it. Enjoy every moment of it. So, sounds like a winner. Anyway, um, on to more real sentimental shit. Um, the crime itself and Bridget's story first uh, reported in the Omaha World Herald, and then the Colleen Daily Herald soon drew wider interest because she wanted and pursued um, the aspect of that she wanted the rape to be reported in the articles with her name as the victim. She didn't want to be anonymous. And I think I read that her father actually worked for the Omaha paper, but I could be wrong. It doesn't matter. Um, quote, in the weeks and months after this, I learned that being a rape victim is like being a member of a secret club. There is so much shame and secrecy about rape, which ultimately keeps rape victims from seeking the help they need so much. We can and should support one another. At the request of the Texas Association Against Sexual Assault, Bridget would return to the field where she was attacked and make a video that was shown statewide as a part of a public awareness campaign. Her message was being that she had done nothing wrong and bore no stigma or shame, and this resonated with many, many people. In this video, she would say, my name is Bridget. Months ago, I was raped and shot in this field. When I was in the hospital, a longtime friend of the family who I'd known for my whole life came and stood at my bedside and told me about her story, about how she'd been raped. I said, do you think about it every day? She said, no. And I knew at that moment that I would get there too. Bridget was also invited to speak at anti-violence rallies and to 900 people at a sexual assault conference in San Francisco. Um, after surviving her attack, Bridget received helpful psychological therapy, and she says that she never really thought she could have a relationship with a man again. She doesn't, continues to this day to not watch violent shows or movies, and she is always aware of her surroundings, but doesn't experience flashbacks or nightmares about her ordeal. So the uh, fun little silver lining, um, as I kind of wrap this up, is that two years after her attack in 2004, um, Bridget flies to New York City that February to meet with Charles Gibson, who interviewed her for the program Primetime on ABC that I mentioned prior. 
there she met a man named Eric Strauss. Uh, he was an ABC News producer who was in charge of the actual interview site. He was also assigned to fly to Texas afterwards to shoot um, a video of Bridget in her home, her classroom, and to interview you know other people there. And um, so one month later, uh, her episode airs. And then a year and a half later, Bridget decides to move to New York City to pursue her master's degree in literacy education, which she does obtain. Um, And during that time, Bridget and Eric, actually, they reconnect in the city and they kind of let their friendship grow for almost two years before Eric finally um, asked Bridget out on a real date. And the couple would actually eventually get engaged in 2009 and in 2012, Ten years after her attack, Bridget and Eric would get married, proving that there can be happiness and recovery in life after horrible trauma. Um, I just keep my fingers crossed that Frank James was at the wedding, but that would be cool. Maybe that's just me. Thank you guys for listening to this Survivor Story episode. And Cassie and I will be back at some point with more Texas true crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.